Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Arnold Kling, who blogs at EconLog, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. Arnold has written on a wide variety of economic topics and is the author of Learning Economics. And his most recent book is A Crisis of Abundance, Rethinking How We Pay for Healthcare. And that's our topic for today. Arnold, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks. I enjoyed listening to your broadcasts. Arnold, what do you mean by a crisis of abundance? Sounds like an oxymoron. Well, it's meant to sound like an oxymoron. Uh, it's, <clears throat> I note that we could actually pay for the health care that we had in the 1970s, which was pretty decent health care, and we could pay for it pretty easily. But what we have now is an abundance of specialists and high-tech medical equipment, and paying for that has become more difficult. So you see the increase in healthcare expenditure, which a lot of people bemoan, as the result of improvements in both the type of people who administer healthcare and the tools that they have to use. Well, I have to be careful about attributing it to improvements because it's not clear that we're we've gotten uh, enough bang for the buck in terms of healthcare. And I, I would say, in fact, that when I when I began writing the book, you know, there was this there's this puzzle that the U.S. spends so much more on healthcare than other countries, and the other countries have uh, longevity that's as good or better. And when I started writing the book, I was actually looking for evidence that uh, to resolve that puzzle in our favor. And I didn't find much evidence of that sort, so I'd be a little cautious on that. But we do have, quote, better diagnostic tools. We have a wider array of pharmaceutical uh, interventions that are possible well, compared to 1970. Yeah, the, you know, you... you there certainly are better things available than what we had in the 1970s, and there's definitely been an improvement. The question is whether the improvement uh, matches up, uh, is it at all proportional to the increase in spending. But it, the important point is that the uh, it's not the, some evil gremlin that's stolen the money. The money is going for real stuff. It's going for real procedures. It's just these procedures are very expensive. They involve the use of specialists, they involve the use of high-tech medical equipment, um, and that's what's that's really what's driving the spending. We wouldn't normally take that perspective in other areas. So if we looked at, say, cars, and we compared an automobile today compared to an automobile, automobile in 1970, we'd say, well, one perspective would be, well, there's a lot of improvements. Uh, there's more cup holders. Uh, the cars are a little... Uh, less likely to break down, they get better mileage, they're safer, safer in the sense that they have more stuff, airbags, more uh, uh, types of uh, crumple zone stuff. And you could counter and say, yeah, well, the cars look like they're improved and they're fancier, but you know whether those are really worth the money, we can't really say. But most of us as economists would say, well, the producers put those improvements onto the marketplace. Consumers preferred them to the alternatives, and so we're comfortable saying those are improvements. We might not be able to quantify what eight cup holders are worth 
or having a GPS system or a CD player with multiple holds holding multiple CDs. But we we say, well, consumers paid for them, and therefore they're probably we presume they're worth it. Uh, we don't have that presumption in healthcare. Why not? Well, you use the word consumers paid for them, and in healthcare, consumers pay for less than fifteen percent of spending out of pocket. Who pays for the rest? The 85% of it is paid for by third parties. So it's mostly health insurance. Government provides about half the health insurance, and then private insurance provides uh, the other half. And that private insurance is subsidized by government through tax deductibility, usually. Yes, in part. And therefore? Well, if... Uh, you know, if you're not paying for it, you're not as conscious about it. But going back to your question, you really can't assert that it's a uh, that it's consumer choice that's driving this uh, increased use of these procedures. Presumably, some some of it would be consumer choice. But if if people had to confront that cost more directly, my presumption is that uh, they would not. Um, that they would not choose as many of these high-tech procedures. Now, I just want to pause because people, one issue is that it's, it's very counterintuitive to people because people tend to think of healthcare in black and white terms. You either need it or you don't. And if you don't need it, you don't get it. And if you do need it, well, the cost it shouldn't really no be option. an issue. But there's a lot of these medical procedures are truly in a gray area. They're neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. And I'd like to give a few examples. Yeah, One um, is you just turned 50 and your birthday present is you should go for a colonoscopy. To it's bad enough <laughs> you turn 50, but you get a colonoscopy as your as your big present for the big 5-0. Yeah, lovely. Lovely, yeah. But everyone, Oprah tells you to do it. Everyone tells yeah. you to do it. I'm sure your wife tells you to do yep. it. And, um, you know, it's to screen for colon cancer. It's not absolutely necessary. It's not absolutely unnecessary. It's somewhere in between. Um, you, know, you aren't guaranteed by any means to die if you don't get it, and uh, but it does improve your chances of not having of not ending up dying of colon cancer. But it's expensive, and there's a risk of complications during the procedure itself. So yeah. it's not a freebie, even right. if you don't even if you don't pay out of pocket for right. it. Right, right. There's there's non-monetary costs as well, but there are also there are also monetary costs. And uh, another example, uh, you're, again, no risk factors, no symptoms, but you're about 40 in a routine checkup, they find microscopic blood in your urine and the doctor recommends more tests. Well, it turns out that there are probably uh, 10 to 15% of the population that's walking around with, that, with microscopic blood in the urine. They don't know it and they're none the worse for it. Uh, so again, these additional tests are neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. Uh, third example, you... Um, hurt your back moving furniture should you go for an MRI exam? Again, neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. And then I'll give one more example, which is based a bit on Michael Moore's movie, Sicko, where uh, he shows a woman who's very distraught. Uh, Her husband had had kidney cancer, and the doctor had proposed a uh, radical treatment that included bone marrow transplants, but this was turned down by the insurance company. And Michael Moore and the woman want you to believe that the insurance company uh, turned it down a because he was black and b because they wanted to save money. And as a result, they only care about profits. They're heartless. That's and, what happens they, in a market-driven system. Yeah, they killed and they killed the husband. Well, if you uh, there's there's actually if you look into uh, 
cancer treatments that are aggressive and then involve bone marrow transplants, they actually have a very dubious history. Uh, Shannon Brownlee has a new book called Overtreated, and one chapter is on uh, the history of bone marrow transplants and radical uh, chemotherapy for breast cancer. And originally, all the breast cancer lobby was very much for it. Uh, but after about 10 or 15 years, they found that it was doing uh, more harm than good, that it was killing some people. Uh, most people was making, it wasn't, it wasn't saving their lives, and the people that it wasn't saving, it was make, you know, creating a very undignified and painful death. And so they've backed away from that. So again, you, you know, if somebody said, okay, I'm aware of all these things and you know, I might have an undignified and painful death and this isn't going to work in most cases, so you, but I still want to do it. So you, you can't say to that person it's absolutely unnecessary. But I certainly wouldn't argue, and I don't think anyone would argue, that it's, that it's an absolutely necessary treatment. So you have these things that are neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. And they make a... They, they're what makes healthcare a difficult issue. You can't just say, well, oh, let's, let's settle it. Let's give everyone a right to healthcare. Let's not even talk about uh, a choice of healthcare. Let's give everyone a right to healthcare. Countries that say that they give everyone a right to healthcare probably would not do any of those four procedures that I gave as my examples. They wouldn't do the routine colonoscopy. They wouldn't do the additional screening uh, for microscopic blood in the urine. They wouldn't do an MRI for a back injury, and they certainly would not do uh, cancer therapy, desperate cancer therapy involving bone marrow transplants. And they don't, you're saying, yeah. actually, in countries that have, quote, free health care. Or universal or a right to health care. They, they're, they're, you can't get past the difficult decisions in this gray area where medicine, where procedures are neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. That's where it turns out there is some real economics of health care. That you, you know, economists, as you, you've had Robert Frank on this program, and uh, he's talked about economists looking at things in terms of costs and benefits. And people don't like to look at costs and benefits when it comes to health care. But when you have these procedures that are neither absolutely or necessary nor absolutely unnecessary, somebody has to make those cost-benefit types of calculations. On a market system, which we do not have, it's important to say, uh, I always like when people say the market for healthcare doesn't work, just look, look around. Uh, we don't have a market for healthcare in, in the classic free market sense. There are market forces at certain parts of healthcare, um, even in the current highly subsidized system and highly regulated system. But in a market system, in the case of cars that we talked about earlier, the cost-benefit trade-offs are made by the consumers, imperfectly, of course. Sometimes you buy something that it turns out you didn't value as much as you thought you would, or it ends up costing you more than you thought. Than, it, than you thought. But the consumer makes that choice. Um, and innovation takes place in that market system based on the expectations of the innovators about what the benefits and costs of improvements might be. In a non-market system, which is what much of the world has embraced in healthcare and what even the United States has embraced to a great deal, those decisions about cost and benefits get made politically, and it's a different set of trade-offs than would be made by by a market system. Yeah, that's a, that's true, and I, I think it's important to, to emphasize your point that we do not have a market system in the United States. There, there are two issues, one of which I deliberately didn't deal with in the book, and we can certainly n pass over on and here, which is on the supply side, that you know what 
a healthcare provider can do is tightly regulated, and I, that limits the ability to, on the supply side, to rationalize the healthcare system, you know, to make it as efficient as possible. But on the demand side, we have this these layers of insulation from cost. Um, that is, as an individual, you typically do not pay for your own health care. In fact, uh, the hospital, you know, if you walk into a hospital with uh, cash or a credit card, they'll look at you like you've just urinated on the sidewalk. They, 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 you know, you, you're supposed to show this magic insurance card that uh, is going to be photocopied and that you don't, and that doesn't involve you paying at all. And it's, it's even more insulated than that in that the insurance card itself, you often don't know what it costs to provide it because it was provided by government or it, it comes through the employer and people don't get a sen have a uh, sense of, of what, uh, what the employer is writing the check for. I, I hesitate to say the employer paying for it because I think a basic economic principle is that workers are actually paying for their own health care. Uh, it's just in the form of lower wages. In the form of lower wages, but so anyway, so you're right. We we don't really have a a market system, but you know, and we don't have a market system anywhere in the world. And one of the things that you have to ask about that is why is that? And you know, as I was writing the book, uh, I began to lean more and more away. Well, I combined two things. I talked about the institutions that we have and how they produce the incentives that they do. In particular, they don't produce an incentive to make very uh, careful cost-benefit decisions. And so I say that our system has incentives that uh, enable us to make extravagant use of medical procedures with high costs and low benefits. And I talk about you know, changing the institutions to, to change that. But at the same time, these institutions have to reflect, in some sense, our values and beliefs and illusions about healthcare. And I think they're worldwide. People really love free healthcare, or what they think of as free healthcare. We, it, it's hard to get away from that. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. Well, I want to that there's some force there, that desire for not having to worry about that cost-benefit trade-off that seems ubiquitous. Um, I want to come back to your hospital example where you show up with, with cash uh, or credit card. Not only is that considered uh, bizarre by the system, but even more bizarre would be to behave like a consumer once you've passed through the payment portal into the treatment portal, which is, treatment area, which would be asking what something costs. So if you ever have a child uh, and you go th to have your child in a hospital, uh, in the lead-up to that experience and the experience itself, there's an enormous number of tests, procedures, treatments that are presumed to be mandatory, even though, of course, they're not mandatory. They impose these. Many of these have no monetary cost to the delivering mother, but uh, they have health risks. Uh, they have psychological costs. They have – they create anxiety. And if you say to the doctor, well, I'm not sure we want that, uh, and that could be anything from uh, some sort of uh, prenatal screening test to uh, an epidural uh, during the delivery, uh, they look at you sometimes like you're crazy. And if you then follow it up by saying, well, what's it cost? Uh, not only do, are they unprepared for the question uh, and find it surprising that you might ask, they don't know the answer, and the answer that they any answer they might give is really not a real answer because 
They don't. They don't sell it. They don't. They don't. Your bill doesn't go down if you forego that. Your bill doesn't. So it, there's all kinds of overhead imposed on those numbers. Um, I remember, you know, getting a glass of at my wife asking for a glass of orange juice. Uh, you know, the 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 official cost of that glass of orange juice I think was something in the dozens of dollars. You know, like a forty dollar <laughs> glass of orange juice. I don't know if that's really what it cost. I don't know what that really number really meant. But I remember thinking, you know, if if I were paying for that. We probably would have brought our own orange juice. It's a little bit of a hassle <laughs> on the way to the hospital or the day before to be prepared for that. But people would take those, those kind of precautions, and those are areas where the grayness is really dramatic. Yeah. They, well, there are a lot of decisions that consumers would make differently. Uh, some A woman named Maggie Mahar, who is not a, uh, an ideological soulmate of mine by any means, but has a very interesting uh, blog called HealthBeat. Uh, just the other day had a post where she suggested that you know, doctors and patients should really have conversations about procedures, and if they did have conversations in which the doctor admitted that there was some uncertainty and this thing might not work, that, that, in, that individuals would often choose not to have procedures. And so she made it sound like, well, we, we, if we just had, had better conversations between doctors and patients, everything would be nice. And my response to that is, is to think, well, why don't, doesn't that happen? And I can go back to my own, you know, my own history, and I, you know, I talked about the forty-year-old uh, man who's, you know, finds you know, microscopic blood in the urine. Well, that's an example from my life. I, and I had a Harvard-trained doctor at the time, and I computed some probabilities using Bayes' theorem. It said that that this symptom is kind of meaningless because the the incidence of serious illness. Uh, at my age and with being a non-smoker is very low. The incidence of the symptom is high, and if you do a Bayes' theorem calculation, uh, you know, that's, there's, there's nothing to get excited about. Well, A, he didn't understand Bayes' theorem. B, he got very angry and uh, you know, worse than defensive. I mean, not only... He was, I'm sure he was offended. Oh, deeply. And so, you know, the idea that... of, of yeah, deeply offended. You know, yelled at my wife on the phone about this whole thing, and um, so kind of the opposite of the conversation that Maggie Mahar is recommending for people. And I think that's more typical. And you know, again, I want to go back and say, well, what is it about our illusion? You know, why is that important? And I think we have an important illusion about the doctor knowing best. So I think there's a reason why we want the communication to be one way from the doctor to the patient is that we don't want to hear about the uncertainty involved. Most people would rather have the illusion that the doctor is God, and doc a lot of doctors prefer to live. I mean, clearly my Harvard-trained doctor yeah. would well. much rather pre pre be treated as God than ha to have a patient question him. And that's that's an element of our system. Well, I'm sympathetic to that viewpoint, although I, I wonder how much of it is the result of the current set of, of cost structures. I think in a world where consumers paid for the cost, they'd be more likely to have that conversation. The doctor would be more likely to be tolerant of it. And my guess is that in areas where consumers pay the cost out of pocket, such as LASIK surgery, those kind of conversations take place without rancor, without uh, offense. That's a, but it's a very, very interesting question. I mean, one way, to, again, to think about it is uh, I don't know much about cars. I like the idea of having a mechanic who I can trust, who when that person says, fix this, I say, oh, it must be necessary. Now, but I know that's not true. I don't have any 
uh, illusions about that. And, and my goal in life in the mechanic area is to find a mechanic who I think would feel guilty and have pain making me do something um, that was unnecessary and and his uh, competition forces him to do that with less frequency. So uh, it's interesting that in that setting, I really don't have any illusions about my mechanic. Now, we understand that healthcare has this emotional part to it that you know, Robin Hansen talked about in an earlier podcast. It's closely related to death, and we have all kinds of strange ideas about death that probably affect our, our thinking. But uh, it's a very interesting question. Let's go back to the to the um, narrative we started. Uh, you made the observation that in today's world in the United States, only about 15 cents of every dollar of health care is paid for directly by the consumer out of pocket. Um, that's a big change over time. If we go back to 1960, uh, say roughly 50 years ago, that number was dramatically higher. Uh, if I remember looking at the day, do you know? Do you remember that offhand? It's, fi- it's at least 50 cents. I can't remember. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it certainly has to be above that because that's before Medicare. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so before Medicare, which was 1965, uh, the average American was paying more than 50 cents on the dollar for any dollar uh, for dollar of health care, and that number has fallen pretty steadily. When I've looked at the numbers a while back. To, to 15 cents from 5.0 to one something over, 5.0 or over to 1.5. That change is a big driver of our expenditure on healthcare. Indeed. And in, in crisis of abundance, the main policy proposal I make or institutional proposal I make is actually to, to push that back up to a number of around, closer to 50%. Um, you know, what, my diagnosis of uh, the system is that you know, we make extravagant use of procedures with high costs and low benefits. And I argue to change that, we need to change, give consumers the means, the motive, and the opportunity to, uh, to make different decisions. And for the means, I think they need more information about the costs and benefits of healthcare procedures. And I don't think anyone has that right now. I don't think the doctors have it. Again, my I don't think my Harvard-trained doctor really understood the probabilities and the costs and benefits. And I, I've, you're, you had Ian Ayers on this uh, previously. He, in his book, uh, he has doctors look at, um, he has an example of a Bayes' theorem problem for doctors where they're supposed to calculate probability, and three quarters of them get it badly wrong. Uh, and that's kind of a bad sign. So I, I don't think the doctors know the costs and benefits because they're, you know, in part because they don't know how to make these calculations. Uh, the patients don't know it. And so, you know, one concern about just sort of handing the consumer the um, the responsibility without the means is that consumers will just cut back uniformly on all forms of health care, not just... Um, you know, not just what's cost ineffective, but just you know even the good stuff. And so, uh, so I say that we need to give them the means. Uh, and one of the my more you know non uh, decentralized proposals is to have a commission actually study uh, costs and benefits of healthcare procedures. Um, to give people the means, but then they, they also... Such a commission might emerge without a, a centralized if, uh, if mandate. There were, if there were the motive, yeah, yeah if, if there were the motive, consumers might ask for it, just yeah, as might, like, yeah. just as consumers, you know, just as somebody who's 
buying a car gets all of a sudden gets interested in consumer reports. Uh, somebody who's interested in healthcare might be interested in uh, statistics on what procedures are appropriate. Certainly, consumers do a lot of research on the internet that suggests yeah. that uh, they have some interest. Um, but we so we need the means and they need the opportunity. That means that you know having a doctor who will have a an open conversation rather than saying me doctor you patient you do what I say, and uh, and and the motive that is you have to have consumers paying uh, higher copayments and higher deductibles in their insurance so that uh, they're they have more of a motive to care about costs and benefits. You've mentioned Bayes' theorem a couple of times. Can you give our listeners an idea? We'll, we'll provide a link to something a little more uh, uh, easy to read. It, this, it's not easy to, to describe Bayes' theorem without a blackboard, perhaps, but I'm going to give you a chance. Uh, when you say you use Bayes' theorem to evaluate your own um, the likelihood of, of getting help from a treatment for microscopic blood in the urine, uh, and the doctors don't understand Bayes' theorem. What, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, let me give an example. This is uh, Megan McArdle, who's another economics blogger, uh, Gives this story. You suppose you, you you have a blood screening for a rare disease. I think this was lupus, and there's let's say that you get one out of a thousand people uh, actually have the disease. In so the it's pop- very rare. Very rare. And the screen there there are four outcomes when you do a test. You can have a true negative, meaning it, it it tells you you don't have it, and you truly don't have it. You can have a true positive, which is tells you you have it and you really have it. And you can have a false positive where it tells you you have it but you don't, and a false negative where it tells you you don't have it and you do. Let's say that there's a 0% false negative rate and a 5% false positive rate. So hang on. So 0% false negative. So the test... If it says you're okay... Then you really are okay. You're absolutely fine. If... Um, now, let's be careful about what the 5% false positive rate means. The typical doctor, or t- and, you know, many other people, think that if a 5% false positive rate means that if you, if you test positive, that must mean you have a 95% chance of having the disease. Right. 5% false positive seems like a low number. Yeah. So it means most of the, overwhelmingly, most of the time, if it says you have the disease, you actually do. Okay, but now let's do the calculation taking a representative sample of 1,000 people. Uh, since we said one out of 1,000 people have the disease, there's going to be exactly one true positive out of those 1,000. If there's a 5% false positive rate, there are going to be 50 false positives. Out of the 1,000. Out of 1,000. that's 5% of 1,000. Yeah. So we have one true positive, 50 false positives. So if you test positive, you're, you're one out of 51 people. You have a one out of fifty-one chance of having the disease, or less than two percent, and which is not ninety-five. Which is not ninety-five, and you know the most doctors just don't understand that. And, and Megan was figuring her doctor didn't understand that because if you really understood that, you wouldn't even give this person the test because it's it's not actionable intelligence to come back with a positive. And, and again, let's make it clear why that's the case. It's not because well, tests are wasteful. It's because this disease is so rare, and the test is, even though it's pretty good, it's imperfect. And that's the key point, that no test is 100% perfect, and we've eliminated one aspect. We've, we've, we've by assumption, created one little element of perfection here, which is that if, if the test says you don't have it, you really don't. Mm-hmm. But in, real, in life, tests... They can err in both directions. Yeah. And those, those errors can be, the test is imperfect, it could be a laboratory error, it could be... A, all kinds of things that could go wrong, 
but just the, the even if there's no lab error, tests don't perfectly measure the uh, danger involved of of the likelihood of you having this disease. It's not a hundred percent if the test comes back positive. And this in this case, five percent error rate, which seems like well, it's a pretty reliable test, is actually because of the rarity of the actual underlying disease, is as you say, probably better not to get tested for it. It's a complete waste. Complete waste. And we ought to spend our time trying to make the test more accurate. Or, doing other or not bother, to... because in this particular case, it's a disease that there's no known treatment of until somebody has shows symptoms. So to even do the, the screening... I think here's one interesting way to look at this, this problem. You're arguing that if consumers paid, clo- paid closer to the full price for the health care they consume, they'd make wiser decisions. But at the same time, we know that politically, that's going to be a very difficult uh, argument to make, either because people don't appreciate the underlying economics, which is, oh, this free health care isn't free, and you're really paying for it in the form of higher, uh, lower wages or higher taxes. But it's also possible that people just like not having to make choices in this area, this emotional, psychological problem we have, and... They don't want to pay 50% because they'd rather just not have to think about it. Either of those is very um, depressing for any hope of political reform. I, well, I, I'm a, a pessimist on political reform. In fact, I don't think any meaningful reforms are being proposed. People are want to sort of shuffle around the financing. So let's throw a few more people onto the government or do something like that. But I haven't seen any anyone suggest anything that would uh, produce a large change. The two large changes you could see, if, if you were to make what I call a left turn in healthcare policy, it would be for government to really crack down on the procedures that get done and start telling, you know, either by limiting the supply or by specifically ruling, Mandates, out, yeah. <laughs> specifically ruling out certain procedures to just sort of, you know, cut down on the procedures that get done. And what I call the right turn would be to have, give consumers more uh, responsibility. But it's very hard to do that. Talk about the iron trilemma, which I think is a nice the, the, an image you use to, to highlight these political challenges. The, 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 these are inevitable trade-offs that people like to ignore in politics and sometimes in their personal life but are not uh, going to go away. Well, yeah, let's say we want three things. One is we – as we've been talking about, we really seem to like being insulated from the costs of health care. Everybody seems to like to not have to think about money when it comes to health care. And there could be any number of reasons for that. Uh, we, we've listed a couple. Um, and secondly, we like unlimited access to health care procedures. And this is America. We're not going to, you know, if somebody says, you know, Russ, uh, you've got a tumor. Uh, we'd like to do something about it. Uh, how about next March? You'd be next March. Are you nuts? I mean, I want it out by Thanksgiving. Don't don't leave that tumor in there till March. Uh, so we have this. Um, you know, we want unlimited access to the best care to best, now. Yeah, <clears throat> best care right now. Uh, and then at the end of the day, we also have to worry about what it all costs. And you can't. You can't have all three of those things. You can't have unlimited access, individual insulation from the cost, and then the overall health care costs not come back to bite you. Well, let's, let's talk about the, um, the single-payer option, which, which is, I think, a seductive option for some people. Politically, is, is, it never seems to die. Uh, and the idea here would be 
that uh, government would run the healthcare system, and it would be more streamlined than the current system. The current system has this horrible mishmash, this crazy quilt of different payments and insurance companies, and, and doctors spend all this time on paperwork. But if we just had a government system, we, we'd be able to take all these costs out of the system. Well, there are, there are two issues there. Is, is sort of would it be a sort of a you know a more humane system, and then would it be a less expensive system? Whether it would be a more humane system is something you you can argue about in terms of you know your preferences and so on. Would it be because some people who maybe can't afford health care under the current system would, would at least have some access, yeah. uh, so there'd be some benefits. Right. Yeah, but as to whether it would be a less expensive system, I think you. You have to look at evidence there, and the evidence uh, strikes me as no, in the, uh, unless what you're talking about is government cracking down on procedures. But let's, if you assume that, that there's no change in the way in our access to health care, that we, that we continue to have as much supply and as ready access to health care, then you clearly are not going to cut back expenses, because just arithmetically, uh, all of the... Um, villains and scapegoats, you know, of drug company profits or insurance company overhead. Arithmetically, they're not large, uh, and they're not what accounts for the big surge in healthcare spending. If you, if I can use that term, in the 1970s, the surge can, has come from actual medical procedures, and these are uh, the, mostly the procedures that involve specialists and high-tech equipment. That's where the spending is, and so if you're going to cut costs. What that has to mean is that you have to cut back on the use of those procedures, which means that if we're going to have a single-payer system that actually is able to function in this country, that means that government is going to, at some point, really crack down on procedures. Even Medicare is going to face that. I mean, what, my description of Medicare is it's the fiscal equivalent of the Titanic. There's tens of trillions of dollars of unfunded liabilities in Medicare, meaning that the difference between what we've promised future recipients in terms of benefits and the taxes that we're going to collect. There's this huge shortfall, and that's the iceberg that the Medicare is headed toward. And when people talk about single payer, the first thing that occurs to me is that they're, they're talking about adding passengers to the Titanic, and we've got to figure out... Or making the iceberg bigger, <laughs> one or the other, yeah. <laughs> making it less likely we could avoid the iceberg. And, you know, so the... And you know, ultimately, the only way we're going, what we're going to do about the ice. So you know, people on the on the left, when confronted with the Medicare deficit, will say, "But that's all just costs. We've, all we have to do to get rid of the Medicare deficit is get rid of costs." And as if, as if there's this separate entity called costs that has nothing to do with medical procedures or healthcare. But the costs are the procedures. And I think the seductive part of that you mentioned, which is that. It's appealing to think that the source of those costs is is the greedy profiteering of pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, and there's just not enough. That's like money ra- there. rounding error in the overall medical budget. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about the innovation for a minute. This is an area I, I've not read anything on. I've not heard it discussed, and I I suspect part of the reason for that is uh, either because I don't read widely enough, or because it doesn't lend itself as well to. Um, modeling or, or empirical work. But here's the question. In the legal environment today, something we haven't talked about, uh, there's a lot of defensive medicine practice just because of that legal environment. Tests get run for fear of malpractice suits, regardless of their efficacy. So that's one of the reasons that we get both high expenditure and uh, expenditure that doesn't 
uh, pay for its its benefits. It's not worth doing, but because of the legal risk, uh, it's it's recommended by doctors. <clears throat> so we we understand that. Here's the puzzle I'm thinking of: if you're an innovator in the medical world, you're you're a biotech or a medical device company. If you come up with a better way to image, you come up with the CAT scan, you come up with the MRI, you come up with a better diagnostic tool, a better screening test. Uh, what is different in today's legal and payment environment compared to that 1960s world where consumers had to pay for it? And I'm asking that because I think one of the benefits of the current system, it's not a benefit that covers its costs perhaps, but one of the benefits of the current system, it seems to me, is that we are an incredible innovation machine in medicine, in the pharmaceutical area, in, in medical device area, and we pay for it. We, we give it to, our, to the customer without having the customer uh, pay the cost. I'm wondering about the incentives to come up with those innovations compared to a system that is uh, more market-based. In, in other words, once the device is out there, it's very difficult for a doctor to not use it, not use best practices. What lets that device get out there to start with? There is, I think, a market mechanism there that's interacting with that subsidy and giving us devices that sometimes are glorious, but sometimes are not worth what they what they cost. Well, um, you know, I've talked in kind of negative ways about the healthcare system. My one thing is that there is this incentive to innovate. Um, I should mention there's a paper by Amy Finkelstein on the uh, introduction of Medicare, and uh, it shows definitely that uh, you know, Medicare helped induce more demand for you know innovative services. I think that's that's her paper. I'll have to, have to well, make sure Jack, that we'll that's put a link up. It's a good paper. paper. It's a good paper anyway, <laughs> or the other uh, paper, whatever it is. Um, but. Um, um, yeah, so there's there's been a lot of induced innovation as a result of this sort of the, all the demand subsidies uh, that we have, and I, I do want to put in one good word for our healthcare system. Like right after Michael Moore's movie came out, I, I wrote a paper about sort of my wife's documentary of our healthcare system, which consisted of uh, and Michael Moore's is an indictment of America's healthcare system as cruel, profit driven, people dying because of lack of treatment, et cetera. Right, and. Uh, my wife's documentary consisted of photos from uh, my daughter's college graduation, at which, you know, three of the stars, including my daughter, my wife, and my father, all were saved by America's uh, healthcare system. Well, my daughter wasn't literally saved, but she has uh, a chronic illness that uh, was much under control. She would never have gotten through college without her medical treatments. And and in the case of my wife, which is, you know, she's a breast cancer survivor. In case of my father, he's a uh, heart bypass uh, survivor. Um, you know, these are all treatments. And, and, and he's, you know, taking medications that... All three of them have taken medications that were not available, you know, 15, 20 years ago. That's and you know, so they've clearly benefited from this innovation. And these medications actually have improved their health, oh, even no though we've question. talked a lot about tests and 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 treatments that are of uncertain or dubious value. We don't want to suggest that there aren't glorious medicines that keep people alive. Yeah, no, there's and a lot of these innovations do help. And and my book starts out with an instance of an MRI for somebody with back pain, of all things, saving this person's life. So uh, 
you know, yeah, it's not as if all of these things are uh, are bad things. So the the innovation is an important thing. And one point that I would make is that uh, the healthcare systems elsewhere in the world don't promote it. You know, you talked about this person who built the better mousetrap and the better imaging thing, the better. The one thing that they're going to do with it is they're going to introduce it in the United States because this is the one market where uh, where that's really receptive to innovation. And you can make a lot of money selling yeah. it. In, in a lot of other places, uh, you develop that, that new wonder drug and the government's going to, since they're the only dispenser of it, they're going to set a price for it that is not anything like a market price. Uh, and they may not like. They may decide that it, at the cost of your uh, development costs, they're not going to cover those costs. It's not worth it, uh, which is what happens around the world. Whereas here, we gleefully uh, give everybody everything, which has this unpleasant, unfortunate cost side. But it does create that incentive for innovation. It's an important thing to remember. Um, let's turn uh, back to the political world, and and. and and I want to get, ask you an unreal question and then a real question. The unreal question is you're, you've already said you would move us toward a, a more responsible healthcare system in the sense that consumers would be more responsible for their payments. What's your ideal system? I mean, I can imagine a political world where consumers had to pay more of the costs and that that was politically preferable to a world where consumers had to give up certain treatments. Um, so I can imagine that world, but is that your ideal? Would you, would you, um, what would your ideal world of healthcare be? That's a good question. I, I actually think that, uh, I favor, and I noticed that actually, uh, John McCain came out with something, I believe it was, yeah, McCain favored this, having more experiments at state level, because I don't think we know what the ideal system is. I wouldn't actually, I wouldn't mind seeing... Uh, a few states experiment with single payer just to see what it's actually like. Because uh, who knows? Maybe maybe they, there really are these efficiencies, or maybe maybe bureaucrats, smart bureaucrats, really can make better decisions than decentralized people. So I, it'd be worth trying. They have to be smart Arizona bureaucrats, though, relative to the unsmart Canadian bureaucrats, because we have a lot of evidence of how, how single payer works, both its attractions and unattractions. So it's hard to really argue. That, that if Arizona went to a single-payer uh, route, that somehow um, it's the problem with the Canadians, the problems with the Canadian system would disappear because it would be run by Arizonians, not Canadians. Well, you never know. Maybe yeah, some, maybe be. maybe with competing <laughs> with other states, yeah, who knows. I certainly would like to see you know, uh, some states try more, uh, more market-oriented systems. I think the ideal would be on the... Um, you know, institutional side for paying for healthcare would be pretty close to what I have in my book, where I sort of have this, you know, an institutional setup where government pays for the poor, where uh, there's uh, most people have uh, sort of long-term catastrophic insurance, and uh, some people who maybe have been ill for so long that their long-term catastrophic insurance has, has run out, they also have kind of a government backstop. Um, on the supply side, I also think we ought to have a less rigid system. You know, we say that you know if you uh, if you're going to get an antibiotic for strep throat for your kid, that has to come with a doctor's prescription. You know, a guy, you know, somebody with an MD. 
if you're going to get physical therapy in Maryland, pretty soon you're going to have to get it from someone with a doctorate. Uh, that they, they just keep raising the requirements, and I can't believe that there's at least there isn't at least some physical therapy that could be done with someone with like the equivalent of, of an auto technician school yeah, thing, not even right. an undergraduate. Um, so these rigid, rigid licensing requirements, I think, have to go if you really want to have the ideal system. And then I could imagine, you know, some, you know, there, there are some people like Shannon Brownlee. I mentioned her book before. You know, she really thinks that HMOs uh, are really the way to go, and she chided me for confusing HMOs and managed care, and saying, you know, but an HMO would be, you know, a centralized system with lots of different healthcare providers that they bring to bear on on the individual as needed. And I think to make that system truly efficient, you have to get rid of the licensing requirements so that that HMO could train its people in whatever manner it chose to do what it chose. And then I could imagine dramatic cost reductions in health care. We, we, you mentioned health insurance in passing. I think we ought, we ought to say something about that. I want to make sure people understand... Um, when you talk about catastrophic health insurance, uh, we currently don't have anything like catastrophic health insurance for most Americans. We have a much broader coverage beyond catastrophe. Yeah, I call it insulation, not yeah. insurance. Right. And explain that. You say insulation, not insurance. Um, okay. The, the purpose of insurance is to protect people from financial risk. That means a large but rare loss. So if you think of insurance like for your homeowner's insurance, the premiums are low. You make claims very rarely. So a lot of people have never made a claim on their homeowner's insurance. And the claims when they're made are for really big amounts, you know, a big fire, you know, major theft. A tree goes through your house and right. causes 50000 100000 worth of damage. Yeah. So that's insurance. Low premiums. Uh, rare claims, really significant financial claims. Health insurance is the opposite. High premiums, of course, you often don't see the premium, but you know, when your employer is paying $12,000, let's say, for a family for that's often that high. Um, and so the premiums are high. You make claims all the time. Every time you, you get any kind of health care, you fill out the form. It's not for and, unexpected events. It's often for things you're planning, and like it's, a pregnancy. And you know, and, and it can be for you know even small dollars. You know, so a lot of people uh, you know are very happy that their health insurance covers getting new eyeglasses. You know, it's like three or four hundred dollars, and it would probably be even less if <laughs> if we didn't have insurance. Yeah. Uh, the competition would drive it below that. But it's anyway. In case it's it's not something that's going to break you financially, uh, but people people get insurance for it. So it's it's the opposite. And so it's it, it's what that tells me is that it wasn't designed as insurance. It wasn't designed to protect people from financial catastrophe. What it was designed to do was insulate people from seeing the price of health care. And that's that's its purpose. And I just want to emphasize the the fundamental connection between usage and price. Uh, it's kind of obvious, but we don't think about it with health care. The reason you don't want to ins- the reason you don't want to insure against uh, everyday common events is because that's really expensive. Nobody nobody offers um, a government-run auto insurance policy that would let you get oil changes whenever you needed them uh, would be very expensive. Now, no one would buy that in the, in the marketplace. 
we might buy a little of it. Sometimes there's warranties that implicitly do that. But, but basically, you realize that if you're the average person and there's some people who are fanatic about changing their oil, your cost of that insurance can be incredibly high. If you think it's okay to change it every 5,000 miles, people who are really careful about their cars and want to change it every 1,000 miles, you're going to be subsidizing their usage, which makes no sense whatsoever. So we're doing that if implicitly with healthcare, and it persists partly, I think, because people don't realize the, that they're paying in the form of higher prices. Yeah, or just take the case of eyeglasses. I don't have any, you know, vision coverage in my health insurance, and so these glasses, I probably haven't had new, gotten new glasses in four years. You know, my friend who has uh, vision coverage, well, she and her family, they get new eyeglasses every year because it's ten bucks. I mean, why not? Which so, is pleasant. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's not the real cost. If it were ten bucks <laughs> to me, I would do the same thing. But that's, um, but that, you know, that illustrates that yes, there the law of demand does apply in healthcare. That if you lower the price to people, people will take more of it. Uh, but you're lowering the price artificially in that you know the the consumer in who's getting the eyeglasses through the insurance is seeing a ten dollar charge, but the uh, society is paying more. Uh, the political economy of this area is is, is very interesting. Uh, the state legislature often requires insurers in a particular state to give you, without choice, those discounted eyeglasses. And on the surface, that seems to the workers in that state, oh, this is great. I, I have to get this. Mm-hmm. It's going to be provided – People, don't, again, don't always think of the cost because they don't see it explicitly. But one of the reasons that insurance is expensive is that there are a lot of mandated coverage requirements that you can't opt out of in return for lower a lower premium. Yeah, the mandates are a big factor in certain states you know, having a lot of uninsured people because uh, – you know, with enough mandate mandated coverage, and but you know, the, as you probably were getting ready to suggest, the mandates are really driven by suppliers. Yeah. So it, it's not that the consumers. But that's because they're so compassionate, Arnold. <laughs> Come on. It's not that the consumers are asking for eyeglass uh, coverage. It's that the opticians and so on are are insisting on it, and you know that's. Uh, been pretty devastating, for example, in Massachusetts. One of the things that Romney wanted to do with his health reform was he was going to introduce an ins- a form, he was going to mandate that everyone buy health insurance, but he was going to take out some of the mandates of what that health insurance contained to make insurance more affordable. But by the time that went through the sausage factory of the legislative process, not only uh, were all the existing mandates kept, but it w- they added enough mandates so that there were now, I think it was, I think at least a couple hundred thousand of Massachusetts people who had health insurance before the health insurance reform are now being told that their health insurance does not qualify as health insurance because it doesn't ca- include some of the new mandates of coverage. It is also worth mentioning that that the health insurance crisis is not always a health care crisis. I, f- I find it interesting along your, alongside your point about what we've done to health insurance to make it less insurance and more insula- really is insulation, as you call it, which I think is a great point. Um, we bemoan the fact that people don't have health insurance because they aren't 
uh, it implies they're not getting health care. What they're not getting is insulation. Unfortunately, because so many people are insulated, they're buying so much stuff, they're driving up the price that the people who do not have health care insurance do face very high prices for health care, but they are not the same thing. Health care insurance and health care are not the same thing. Yep, that's and you know another point, and this is actually uh, drives some of these healthcare reforms. And I don't, I actually don't, I think it's not a good driver. Is that uh, there is a small fraction of people who don't buy health insurance, don't qualify for government health insurance, but will show up at the doctor, or the emergency room, sure. and, and expect someone else to pay for it anyway. And this, and they're correct. Um, but the, the larger point is that, you know, in general, few people are turned away for actual health care in the United States, even though there are uh, many people who don't have insurance. Yeah, that, that's cheerful. Unfortunately, it's, it's that health care is often provided in a very costly way through that emergency room, although uh, I think there's some indication that the effect is not as large as people might might have thought. I think the dollar amounts are not, not, not that large. big. I wouldn't... I wouldn't you know, make a huge effort at reform just designed to reduce the amount of uh, uncompensated care that takes place. Yeah. I don't. Th- I, that, I wouldn't make that a central issue in healthcare. Of course, one of the stranger parts of this whole argument is that the thing that bothers me the most intellectually about it is the top-down engineering focus. Uh, the idea that that we have to redesign the healthcare system as opposed to letting the healthcare system emerge from the choices of individuals, supply and demand side. But instead, we just have to somehow tinker with it, with the right mix of mandates and discounts, subsidies, reforms. And that's we're not good at that. Uh, both the political system certainly isn't good at it, but even if, if we had a, a cadre of experts uh, insulated, which could never happen from political pressure, it still wouldn't happen. Let's close. We're getting low on time. Let's close with your discussion of evolution and markets, which this uh, leads us to at the at the end of your book. Uh, you have some interesting things to say about markets, and the um, you, you talk about how markets are often sold as as being efficient, but that's not why you like them. Well, as you were talking about uh, your skepticism about or your concerns about the top down, you're sounding like a classic Masonomist, or uh, <laughs> which, and I, I just I want to use my phrase "lose the we." So uh, right away we're right. saying we. It's our healthcare system, and we have to design it. And uh, I think our classic, you know, Masonomics point of view would be, well, what, what's this we? You know, if individuals. You know, individual. Each individual, in some sense, has his or her own healthcare system. You can, you can, you know, think of that world and people, uh, you know, as consumers saying, "Well, I would like more information, or I would like to be insulated, and this is what I'll pay to be insulated from healthcare costs." Whatever emerges out of that. And uh, I guess I, I want to interrupt and just tell our listeners that Masonomics is a, a term that Arnold coined recently in an essay. We'll put a link up to about some of the peculiar. Uh, uh, philosophical and uh, methodological flavors here at George Mason's economics department. It's a very nice essay, and uh, uh, proud to have be part of that peculiar uh, cadre. But carry on. So, in, in this discussion of evolution markets, I, I'm, I'm making sort of a classic Masonomic point, which is that uh, you know, suppose that at at no point in time are you going to have a perfect healthcare system that. Uh, there's always going to be room for improvement. 
well, where, where, where are you most likely to get that improvement? In a, you know, in a competitive market system where institutions that don't work can fail and where institutions that do work will be reinforced and succeed. And the, you know, my outlook on government is that it's much easier for institutions that fail in a government setting to instead be reinforced. I mean, look at public schools and urban public schools as an example. Uh, you know, no matter how much they fail, they, they are just need more money. That's they, all. They're yeah. just reinforced. Just and um, uh, or these insurance mandates in Massachusetts, which you know, Romney thought if he could just get rid of those, he could make insurance cheap, but he can't get rid of those. So it's it's much harder. If you don't believe that you can uh, institute at any one point in time a perfect system and you think that you're going to have to uh, kind of grope your way, evolve your way toward a better system, then relying on markets is better because markets, you have competition, you have failure, which is a really important uh component of evolution, things really have to fail and disappear. And be eliminated, yeah. And be eliminated. And, uh, and then you also have uh, better incentives for success in a market system. And therefore? And therefore, I would prefer to have more of the healthcare evolution come from markets and less, less of your top-down uh, let's lose the we on our healthcare system instead of saying let's have John Gruber or David Cutler or whatever design our healthcare system. Let's let the system you know, see if you could get government out of making the decisions and out of trying to decide what's going to be the perfect system and let it let it emerge more from decentralized decisions. My guest today has been Arnold Kling. He blogs alongside Brian Kaplan at EconLog, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. We've been talking about his book, A Crisis of Abundance. Arnold, thanks for being here. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.